No, I'm not. <laughs> he was thoroughly qualified to carry out the office of mediator and guarantor. And that's where we sort of jumped off last week, and that's why I put these two terms back on there, just to remind you what it meant that Jesus is the mediator, which means to be a go-between. He's the one who mediates, especially between parties at variance. And so we talked about that. Hey, we came into this world at variance with God because we are sinners. So God deems us separated from himself as sinners, but Christ is the one who goes between us and God. He went between us and God, and we'll talk about this more in a minute, in his perfect sinless life and in his death on our behalf on the cross. But he is the mediator. He is the go-between. And also this word guarantor or surety, um, I told you it was a banking term that means to protect against loss or damage. But more specifically, it's a fulfillment of an obligation or a payment of a debt. One who acts in the place of another. So in that way, Christ is our surety because the Bible teaches us that he literally, we call this penal substitution because he paid the penalty for our sin in our place, right? So he went to the cross when we should have been the ones that God judged and punished, but he punished Christ instead, right? So he is our surety and our mediator. And we talked about that kind of at length. And especially as we keep reading here, um, uh, let's go on down to section four. And the Lord Jesus most willingly undertook this office to discharge it, this office of mediator. He was born under the law and perfectly fulfilled the law. He also experienced the punishment that we deserved, that we should have endured and suffered. He was made sin for us. He endured extremely heavy sorrows in his soul and extremely, extremely painful sufferings in his body. And then, of course, he was crucified and dead. And we talked about these next few terms here, the active and passive obedience of Christ. That's exactly what that's describing. And I tell you these things because a lot of times we mention them in preaching, and I like, I like for you to know what we're talking about. So you're not going, well, you know, you get, if you're like me, I can get easily distracted. So if you say something I don't understand, I may start thinking about something else, and there I'm gone. So he's our mediator, our go-between, our surety. He's the one that paid our debt, took our place. And he did all this through his active and his passive obedience. Now, to define those words as simply as possible, Christ's active obedience was his perfect conformity to God's law. You see here it said he was born under the law and he kept the law perfectly. That means every jot and tittle, as the Old Testament would say, I mean, as the Bible would say about the Old Testament, every nth degree of the law, Jesus has kept it perfectly. He never disobeyed it. He never transgressed it. He perfectly obeyed the Father's law. So not only did he not break it, but he also perfectly kept it. He conformed to it in his whole life. That's his active obedience. Now, in a minute, when we, if we get to the end of this, we're going to talk about his intercession. And he is still 
we are still benefiting from his active obedience. And that's important too. But his active obedience, he perfectly not only kept the law, but he never failed in it either. And we talked about, if you remember, why that's so important is because in the garden when Adam fell, he sinned and fell short of the mark of the glory of God. He, he transgressed God's law. He broke it. And so God removed him from the garden because not only did Adam need to keep the law of God perfectly in order to be with God, he also needed to inherit or earn righteousness, which is right living, perfect according to God's standard, in order to be there. So you not only need um, to not transgress the law, but somehow you have to attain righteousness, right? And this is our great dilemma. Because not only are we lawbreakers, but we're lawbreakers because we're unrighteous. So we have both the double, um, we have the double whammy, so to speak. We are God's, we have broken God's law, and we don't have any righteousness of our own. And see, every religion really in the world except Christianity will teach you, but you can do something in order to get righteous. But we know that we can't do that. Now, Adam depending on what you believe about um, what Adam had to do in the garden, we believe that had he not transgressed the law, then somehow through the tree of life he would have gained righteousness that he needed. But then God moved him out of there and said, now you know, you're going to earn what you... I told you you would earn. You're going to earn death. And so death, as the Bible says, came to all men because of Adam's sin. And that seems unfair until you realize that the second Adam, who is Christ, who was perfect, in the same way, we don't deserve what he gives us, but we get it too. So that's important. Just hold on to that. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But do you understand the, what active obedience is and why we refer to it that way? Because this was Christ's life. He actively, in his life, kept God's law and didn't break it. His passive obedience is his endurance of lifelong suffering which culminated in his death on the cross. So a lot of times we refer to this as the passion of the Christ, right? This, this time that he went through um, prior to being crucified. Can you say that again? Enduring, endurance of lifelong suffering. Culminating in the death on the cross, in his death on the cross. So you, and you may kind of see why we refer to what he did and did not do as active obedience. The passive obedience is because this is what was brought down on him and he endured it, right? He endured the shame. The Bible says he um, endured the shame and he endured the cross. He endured the suffering. And there's some verses. I, I put those verses there. Those come straight off of here. Um, I'll just read a, a couple of these to you so you can, you can hear this. Um, let's see, 1 Peter 3.18 I think is a good one. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. And then some of these other places, um, 
Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Right? So you see that in in these other places, uh, let me see if it's uh, maybe the Matthew passage. I gave you those so you you can have them, which they're in the they're in the confession, the Matthew twenty seven one forty six. In uh, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, um, "Eli, Eli, Sabachthani, That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's also like in the Garden uh, of Gethsemane when he was praying just prior to the crucifixion, we see that travail in his soul where he's agonizing. And I think that uh, we were talking about this at lunch today. That's the part that I don't think we can imagine well. And like if you ever watched any of the movies like The Passion of the Christ, if you haven't seen that, I think that's a pretty good one to watch because you sort of get what it meant to be whipped with cat and nine tails and what what the body went through, that kind of suffering. But no matter what you watch or read, I don't think you're able to understand the passive obedience of Christ, that suffering and anguish and soul to take on the sin of all the people of God that would ever be saved. I don't know there's any way to voice that. And I'm assuming that someday in eternity we'll, we'll recognize and understand as we're praising God for Jesus and thanking him for saving us at some way maybe we'll grasp what it meant for him to die for the sins of the world. But that's deep. I mean, I don't think we, uh, I don't know exactly what was going on right there in that passage where I read that Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it has something to do with the fact that the sin of the world was upon him. And it was crushing him. But it couldn't crush him completely because he's God. He's a God man. So, but in your definition, you're saying enduring a lifelong suffering. Yeah, because I think even the temptations, um, the satanic temptations, the uh, the temptations that he endured as a man, where the Bible says he was in all points like us, tempted yet without sin. Because see, I think we don't, we can't even begin to understand that because we usually just give in to temptation. You know, if we resist much, it's not very much. We end up giving in. So to to suffer, I mean, think about that. He was in all points tempted like we. Every temptation that's ever been known to man, Christ was tempted, yet he never sinned. I mean, I can't imagine what kind of uh, anguish of soul that would be. To, because that was part of his enduring to save his people from their sin was that he had to go through that so that all righteousness might be fulfilled. So, um, What about when his family thought that he was crazy for what he was teaching and not really eating well or praying too much or whatever, and they think he, that he needed to go home with them? That was, that's the type of suffering. Oh, I think definitely. And he came into his own people, and they received him not, his own people. You know, some of his own people would have been among the scoffers. And those, as he's dying on the cross, if you're God, get yourself down from there. If you're who you said you were, of course, they didn't understand. You didn't want him to come down. He needed to stay there because he's 
taking our place, which is amazing. And like I said, I don't understand all this. This uh, this um, passive obedience, this um, suffering in his soul, in anguish, um, in his inner being. I I don't know how to describe that. Also, just seeing the sin of the world, right? Seeing all the sin before his eyes all the time. Oh, sure. Selfishness or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, of his own creation. Yes. Without a doubt. Any other questions about that or any thoughts about it? Did I, yeah, I put the passages there. And all those are there. You know, First Corinthians five twenty one, I talked to you about that a little bit last week. God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So there's that there's that understanding. God made him sin. He didn't sin, but he died on the cross as if he had sinned every sin so that we might be given his righteousness. And that's kind of what I wanted to I, I alluded to this earlier. That's that is the gospel. That's the good news. That God didn't require sinners. All right, here's what you got to do if you want to come to me. No, because we never would have come. So he came down to us. That's the, the beauty of the condescension of God. God came to earth. He came down, took on flesh, became a man, lived the perfect life that Adam couldn't live, that none of us could ever live, never transgressed the law of God, and also was perfect in righteousness and never lost that. And now... As a result of him doing all that and still going to the cross and dying and being buried and raising again and ascending back to heaven, those of us who believe in him, that, that's a gift from God too. And through that gift, he has counted us. That's that, it's a banking term again. He has accounted like my bank account that's usually not very much money. It's as if somebody looked at it and said, well, you only have you know $500, but we consider your account to be $3 million. I mean, that'd be awesome, right? My account's 500 but y'all consider it $3 million? That's pretty good. Down. Yeah, it and it just down. stays there. But in a much bigger and better way, you know, God says you're, you're sinful, and you would have never been anything but sinful. But I look at you, and I count my son's righteousness as yours. Well, I count his righteousness in your place. And that's how we, by the way, that's how we make it to heaven. That's how we make it to God. Which is why the Bible is so clear, not of works, lest anyone should boast. There's no reason that anybody that halfway understands Christianity should ever look at any other being as if we're better, as if we made a better choice than other people. Because we usually don't. And even as Christians, we don't always usually not make any better choices. Now, we hope that that's changing, and we hope that because of the law of God, that is written on our hearts that we will walk differently than we did. And we hope that he is transforming us. Um, but that's by grace too. I mean, if, if we think ever, well, God saved me, but now I do pretty good. That's, that's, you're not doing pretty good. God saved you by grace, and by grace he sustains you in um, all of us. And that's our only hope is Christ's active 
and passive obedience. Any questions about that or anything? I haven't even got to really the all of section four yet. Let's keep reading. It says, um, on the third day, well, let's go back to that uh, previous sentence. He endured extremely, extremely heavy sorrows in his soul and painful sufferings in his body. He was crucified and died and remained in a state of death. Yet his body did not decay. For on the third day he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered. In this body he also ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of his father interceding and will return to judge men and angels at the end of the age. Now, we sort of pointed this out last week, but remember the people writing this confession were dealing with a lot of false teaching. And so you notice they're very adamant about pointing out he was he lived in this body, he suffered in this body, he obeyed in this body, he died in this body, they buried that body, and that's the body that raised. Because there was a lot of false teaching going around that like, you know, they swapped the bodies or Jesus was one thing until he went to the cross and he turned into something else and they buried him and then he turned into something else and he rose. And so they're very adamant to point out, no, this, this is the man God sent. This is the son of God. He died in this body. He was buried. That body rose from the dead and ascended and will one day return. And plus it's hope for us because it reminds us that we're going to lay this body down one day and then God's going to raise up a, a body that's new. But it'll still be us. And, um, but I like that they point that out. But the point I believe that they're mostly trying to get to right here in this section four is that end part that since he has ascended, he is now with the Father and sits at his right hand, which is an, which is an indicator of power, Right? To sit at the right hand is is a place of power. And he is there interceding. So I thought I would uh, take the rest of our time to talk about these two ideas of ascension and intercession because that's what's in here. Ascension, obviously, he rose from the dead. You know, he was here, what, 40 days after the resurrection, saw a lot of people, a lot of people saw him. The writers are clear to point that out in case people were doubting that this Jesus didn't raise from the dead. I mean, they named people. You know, James saw him, Cephas saw him. About 500 people at one time saw him, or 300 people saw him. They were pointing out, as they were writing these letters, so people could read these letters and, I think, go and validate it. Hey, he said, you saw this Jesus alive. Did you see him? I mean, you know, they were, they were not being secretive. They were making sure that people knew, hey, we saw Jesus alive, and here's the proof. You can go ask these people. There's a bunch of people that saw him. Now, again, we believe this by faith, right? <laughs> I mean, as I'm reading these things, I'm like, you know, no wonder the, the world thinks we're crazy because this sounds like craziness. This man that suffered for the sins of all of his people. He died, was buried three days later. He did not decay. And I don't know if you've been around much, but I mean, dead body in three days, that wouldn't be good. There would be some decay especially in this region. But his body did not decay, and I, and I know that they, was, uh, he, they were prepared for burial and so forth, but the point being, uh, you know, they wanted everybody to understand he got up in that same body 
and then after 40 days of being on earth, he ascended. And we find that in Matthew 28, there at the giving of the Great Commission, um, she was taken up, right? Went up to heaven. And this idea of ascension in church history has also been known as his session, S-E-S-S-I-O-N. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Christ's session, which is a word that used to be, in English, it was pretty common, apparently. It just means to sit down. So Christ's session is his action of being at the right hand of the Father and being seated, which is language just meaning, again, what does the king do on his throne? He sits. So um, when we speak of Christ seated on the throne, is he physically, literally sitting down in heaven? I don't know, but he is seated in the sense that he is seated in his rightful place. He is the king of glory, the king of kings. He is at the right hand of God the Father because that's where, as we read, uh, he has given all power to him to judge. So he's there. That's what his session is. It is his ascension, but he's also seated in his rightful place. And this is fulfillment of prophecy, Psalm 110 and 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And the, and the New Testament points out that that is Christ. That Psalm 110 and 1 is talking about Christ. Hebrews 1 and 3 points this out. Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after he made purification of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So there was an indication of completion of Christ's work at redemption and authority given to him by the Father, all in this idea of him <coughs> ascending and being seated in his place, right? The session. They probably did. Yeah. I wonder if they got that. Probably did. Right, but basically, that's, that's uh, a group of elders. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right, but basically, that's, that's what the session is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a group of people that sit down and discuss that's probably, doctrinal it's, things. That's probably where they got this word, yeah. No, that's, uh, it's more political than that. Uh, yeah, for the Presbyterian Church. Yes. Uh, it is. Yeah, I'm not real familiar. I'm not an expert on that, but basically, uh, I know that uh, uh, that's the uh, board, yes. uh, body of, of leadership mm-hmm. uh, in the uh, Presbyterian Church. I just think it's interesting that that word session. Yeah, well, it's a word from church history, so yeah. they probably did take it, and especially mm-hmm. since it just means to be seated. Also, when the judge comes in oh, and is yeah. announced, the court is now in session. session. Yes. And of course, we know that the the judge is the court. Yeah. You know. So there. So we do use. And again, it's that idea of a seated power of of authority. Of yeah. Authority, yeah. Oh, well, and when you're having an official meeting, we are now in session. 
Yeah. So we do use it quite well. Well, it's funny that we use it. I think I just pointed that out because we don't use the word in the way it what used to be used. You know, it's changed meanings over time. But it still holds. If you think about because I've not even thought about that perspective. Mm-hmm. I always thought in session meant, okay, it's time to, it's time to do something yeah, now. Yeah, that's right. But I can see now it probably means all this. This court's in session. The judge is in power now. And we're so all if, seated in our If you're out of months. order, you're going to answer to him yeah. at this point because it's in session. And he's in his place of authority, yeah. Because from Christ's session, and there's more verses, uh, if you want to write these down, Ephesians 1, 19 through 23 talks about um, how Christ has been seated. God has seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Yeah, you got to. <laughs> chapter 1 is everywhere. First uh, Peter chapter 3, 22, Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers being subjected to him. But it was from his session, from his seating after his ascension, his session, that he poured out the Spirit on the church at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured it out, this thing that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So from his place of session and authority, Christ poured out the Spirit that birthed the church at Pentecost. And there's at least one practical application to, to this uh, other than that. that and you could, I've seen a lot more than this, but um, probably most practically, Christ's going up into heaven, ascending up into heaven, not his session, but he's going up, even though the Bible says that we, he seated us with him. So in ways, we're partaker of that somehow and um but his going up to heaven foreshadows our future going up with him for the lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry and a command the voice of an archangel with a trump the sound of a trumpet of god and the dead in christ will rise first then we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the lord in the air and so we will always be with the lord and so I encourage you to go with these words it says. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which so clings to us so closely, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking unto Jesus, the founder and the perfecter, the author and the finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So that's his ascension, which also includes his session. So I didn't give you that term. I'm sorry. You'll have to do that work on your own. Write that, write that word down on your own. Any, any question about that or anything else you want to say? Because I think the intercession of Christ is very important. We see this, this the, the last term there, the intercession we see this, of course, played out in the Old Testament, right? This is what the priest did. He interceded. He would go in once a year to the Holy of Holies. He would intercede but on behalf of the people and make offerings. And at other times, in the, in the courts, in the temple, he would make offerings that God was pleased to accept for a time until Christ would come, right? 
And that priest would do this work of intercession. Christ's work of priest is now from heaven where he ever lives, the Bible says in Hebrews, to make intercession for us. Christ is still interceding for us. And this is what I mentioned earlier from his that active obedience. We're still benefiting from his actively. He will always keep the law. He will never transgress it. And he will always be our mediator. So I think that's important, too, to see in all this. It wasn't just that Christ came and did all that stuff. He did all that stuff, and it's still in our place. And it will forever be in our place. Which Hebrews 7.25 says that. He ever lives to intercede for us. And there again, what, what do we boast about? I don't know exactly what heaven will be about. I don't know what uh, rewards and all that stuff is going to be about. But whatever it's about, it has to be at the end of the day about Christ. Because it's because of him that we have any chance. It's because of him that we are forgiven. It's because of him that we are going. And it will be because of him that we are there and that we stay forever. And you think about this. If, if you don't believe in what you've probably always heard. Uh, I mentioned this last week. What's always been called uh, eternal security. But what we really refer to more, I think, biblically accurate as the perseverance of the saints, that the saints will persevere. If you're born again of God, you'll never lose that because Christ said, I've never lost one that you've given me. But the other, you know, if you realize that salvation is a God thing from beginning to end, that you had nothing to do with it, so you can't mess it up. But this is another point also. Christ, as long as Christ is alive, you'll be saved and since he's the one who made all things and by him and for him and through him were all things made that were made and he's eternal it's a pretty good idea pretty good shot that we're going to be saved forever this idea that you can be saved and lost is not rooted in what the bible tells us if christ interceded for us he is our mediator he is our surety he is all these things and he lives forever to intercede for us then we're not there's no chance that we can be anything but saved Man, that's, that's just a glorious doctrine that we need to proclaim because it's always going to be the case. Uh, here's a good place to see this intercession. Hebrews, the whole book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 through 34. It was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, for Christ has entered not into the holy places like the temple made with hands, which are only copies of the true things, but Christ has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer... How far did I say 34? Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the priest enters... See, this thing about the Old Testament priests, they had to keep going, doing this. You had to keep killing animals. You had to keep making sacrifices. But it says Christ didn't do that. He didn't enter every year with the blood not his own. For then, he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is, Appointed to man once to die, and after this judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, 
will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly are waiting for him. That's great, isn't it? Isn't it funny how some, so often we use beautiful, glorious, joyful passages to threaten people with? I mean, that right there, how many times have you heard it's pointing a man wants to die in judgment? And that sounds daunting, like, ugh. But this is in the context of it is a point a man wants to die and then judgment. But Christ has offered himself to bear the sins of many and he will appear a second time. This time he's not going to be coming to pay for sin, deal with sin. He's coming to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He's coming. Yes. And I'm guilty of that. I've used that passage that way so I know that it gets used that way. And I don't think that, I mean, it's not wrong to say, hey, you know, it's the point a man wants to die in judgment. But to the people of God, you need to hear that's in the context of he's coming back to get you. Hey, that, that's not scary for us. It's the point a man wants to die in judgment. And Christ is coming to get his people. That's a good thing. The dead in Christ shall rise, right? Yes. I found this uh, one quote from Charles Hodge about this I thought was really good. It was a real big quote, but I pulled this little part out. He said, Christ presents himself before God as our representative. His perfect manhood, his official character, and his finished work. He pled for us before the throne of God. All that the Son of God is incarnate is, or in the flesh is, and all that he did on earth, he is and he did for us, so that God can regard us with all the favor which is due him. His presence, therefore, is a perpetual and prevailing intercession with God in behalf of his people and secures for them all the benefits of his redemption. There was one last passage here. Uh, Is that Hodge or That's Charles Hodge. Yeah. Daddy. Daddy Hodge. Daddy Hodge. <laughs> Charles is the dad. A.A. is the son. Um... And here's a good place. Let's see. Romans 8 and 34. That's the last verse I have for you. Um, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. And who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? And, and that's, again, that's in this beautiful passage of, if God is for us, then who can be against us? The one who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is there left to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, and he's at the right hand of God interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present or things to come, powers, height, depth, or any other thing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a beautiful passage. In the context of Christ interceding for us. So, our hope is not in us. Our hope is not in our religion. Our hope is not in anything except Christ. The mediator. Any comments or questions?
Yes. The rest of this, um, it's going to go back and forth to some, keep coming back to this same idea. Um, it's going to talk about redemption in more detail and the scope of redemption and the extent of it. And uh, that always gets interesting. Any questions?